Welcome to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're talking about Gene Wolfe's very first professional publication, the short story Trip Trap, originally published in the 1967 volume of the annual science fiction anthology Orbit. It's also reprinted in the story collection Stories from the Old Hotel, a collection of Wolfe's lesser-known fiction. Trip Trap is essentially Beowulf by way of uh, Jorge Luis Borges. <laughs> it's about a hero defeating a troll on a planet called Carson 3. So, Glenn, why don't you get us going with the plot recap? Yeah, I'm happy to, Brandon, though. This is a doozy of a story. So uh, you're going to have to help me out here. Definitely. And yet you might, have to, you might have to rouse me a few times. <laughs> Trip Trap. We begin in a thunderstorm. Between the rock of the Carath Angor and the gorge of the Albanda Rune, a band of warriors hurries home after three years of war. And we know that we are in a fantasy setting. A bolt of lightning lights up the sky, and the war leader sees a single rider coming toward them far away. The warriors draw their lances and prepare to meet the lone rider. But the stranger rides into their circle, halts before the commander, and presents him with a rolled parchment, a letter. Brandon, uh, this is a magnificent opening. It's really strong. I, I I don't know. I'm glad you did not go deep into the kind of metaphor that Wolf is using here, because I think it's meant to draw you immediately into the story. And it's kind of ultimately unclear what is happening, really, in, unless you're reading very carefully. Yeah, um, yeah. There, there are a couple of things going on here. Wolf really makes language work for him. Like He, he deploys language here in this opening segment uh, to build up this fantasy world without ever actually having to engage in exposition. And right. it's masterful. But uh, it is a confusing first paragraph because the story opens with a metaphor for thunder. The first line of this story is, giants were fighting in the sky. And and this works, as you say, Brandon, by tricking us into first reading that literally, right? Thinking right. this is a story about giants fighting in the sky. And it's only near the end of that paragraph that we actually come to realize that this is a metaphor for thunder that's employed by uh, a culture that's strange to us. Yeah, it's, it's a masterful. And this is, I mean, this is the trick of close reading here. So giants were fighting in the sky, the roar and crash of their weapons and the wind scream of their strokes reverberated this could just be two giant robots fighting in the sky yeah. maybe it's an airplane fight maybe you have no idea and the clue for what's actually going on does not come until three lines from the end of this paragraph where wolf says a waterfall makes its own thunder always mm -hmm. it's that own thunder that it's lets us know that thunder. thunder has been although not a word that's used at all in the preceding three sentences but we understand thunder is has been the subject of of those sentences it's it's a crazy use of language so yeah. i also want to point out here right at the beginning that one of the things that wolf uses to clearly signify to us the reader that we're in a fantasy setting is to basically steal uh names from the lord of the rings uh, right uh, the name kareth angor uh for example just jumps off the page as basically being Kirith Ungol, and we're going to see we're going to see this throughout. And I, I, and I, I'm going to point it out because it's a, it's I find it interesting as a fan both of Gene Wolfe and The Lord of the Rings. I don't think that there's any. I don't think that denigrates the value of the story. Not one bit. at all. This I just is, want to make that clear. A story that's heavily borrowed from. You can tell 
he really admires Tolkien and Tolkien's mastery of the old English forms of literature. And there's a lot of Conan in here as well. We have a little bit of a mangled form of Samaria as one of the names we're given a little bit later on. So there's a lot of fun to be had in this story in terms of guessing the references. Yes, that's right. And I, I think I, wanna, I want us to have a, a good time with that sort of uh, in our discussion at the end. So, But let's continue with the plot. So at the exact same moment that these warriors are receiving a letter in the rain, Dr. Morton Melville Finch, PhD in extraterrestrial archaeology, is making coffee in the galley. The communicator pings at him, and Dr. Finch crosses the galley to see what message had been hurled at his ship across the light years of space. And now we know that we're in a science fiction setting. <laughs> yes. And also we know that this story is going to be about delaying information. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Though I think we know that that's, uh, that's, that's what every wolf story is about. Yes, yes. This one more so than most, I think. <laughs> so Dr. Finch has a letter from Professor John, John Beatty at the Edgemont Institute on Earth. And we learn that Dr. Finch has just earned his doctorate and is taking a bit of a holiday before taking up his teaching duties in Professor Beatty's department. And, and Beatty wants Finch to divert course to a habitable planet orbiting Carson's sun. Uh, the planet Carson 3 is off limits to colonization and trade because there is an indigenous species with human-level intelligence, but too little technology to interact equally uh, with Earth or to interact with Earth on, a, on an equal footing. And this is this is essentially the prime directive of Star Trek. Um, absolutely that. Yeah, and so I found this very fascinating. Uh, again, as a big Star Trek fan, and now we've invoked Lord of the Rings and Star Trek in the first five minutes of our very first podcast <laughs> right. episode, Brandon, I feel like I should just fully disclose to listeners of the podcast that I have both Star Trek and Lord of the Rings tattoos. Um, and I might be willing to get a Gene Wolfe tattoo if listeners want to write in with some suggestions about that. I couldn't imagine what it would be. Uh, that's what we have listeners for. Right, right. <laughs> so getting back to the Prime Directive, that Prime Directive, of course, for, for I assume most science fiction fans have a sense of what the Star Trek Prime Directive is, but it is, um, in, within Star Trek, it is the fundamental operating principle of the exploratory arm of you know Earth civilization in the you know three three centuries from now right and the notion is that uh, it's a non-interference directive that it is that we do not interfere with civilizations that that have not developed their own ability for interstellar flight and what's interesting to me about the its appearance here is that of course reading this here in 2017 i saw this reference or saw this saw this as a reference to the prime directive but trip trap was published in 1967 and the prime directive doesn't show up in star trek until an episode that airs in february of 1967 i have to think that this story is already well in the the works at this point absolutely i mean that's fascinating there's a lot of stuff in this story that also prefigures a word our fans will have to get used to uh (laughs) A lot of the next generation as well. This this feels like one of the best episodes of TNG. So I find it very interesting that uh, it's not that this is borrowing from Star Trek or borrowing from Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future, but this seems to be something that's actually kind of just in the. the it's in the water. This, yeah, it's in. Well, yeah, maybe. Yeah, perhaps in the water in the zeitgeist <laughs> of of at least you know critically engaged science fiction writers. Yeah, um, and so I think one has to really think uh, about this in the context probably of, of reaction to Vietnam, which of course that is also what Star Trek is all about. So um, let's return to our story. So Carson Three off limits to colonization and trade, but it is open to scientific. 
expeditions, but no one has ever gone there. So BD has received a report that a shipwrecked spaceman, which I love uh, the use of the word spaceman here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is presumably a human, though we don't know that for sure. Um, and this spaceman has recently been rescued from Carson 3 uh, after after the shipwreck. And a number of the symbols used in the native language, he reports, uh, are identical with those found on the porcelain shards from Seta 2, about which Finch wrote his dissertation. Yeah, one way to think about this is uh they're trying to prove an ancient aliens theory that's kind of what's going on in this story yeah just to simplify it it's masterful masterfully obscured but just you know that's what's going on here yeah i mean he says he's, inter- he's looking for an interstellar civilization that predates humans and so of course he wants he's going to send finch to to go check this out he says and you know i hate to interrupt your vacation but you've got to you gotta go do this work so uh right. and there's a really great detail in this letter uh in which Beatty explains what's at stake for finch professionally and he says that uh this investigation might just lead to dr finch becoming a department head at 35 and and wolf writes this uh, as if that's something that academics actually aspire to and i can and tell you, Brandon, as a professional academic, it's something that we dread and hide from. <laughs> no one, no one is good. No one goes into being a university professor because they want to look at spreadsheets and manage a budget and and uh, run departmental meetings. We get into it because we want to research topics, nerdy topics that are really yeah. interesting to us. Write books about them and teach courses about them. This is not something. No one has this aspiration. And BD I think is playing a long game here, though. I think that that's um, yes. <laughs> uh, that, that's what we'll discover. There's some really great parallels that I hope to get into in our discussion between our uh, receiver of the first letter in the fantasy world Mm -hmm. and Dr. Finch. Yes. So uh, let's return now to our fantasy world where the war chieftain has a letter of his own to read. His supremacy, the protector of the Westlands, writes to Garth, the son of Garth, unfortunate name, uh, who holds the title holder of the high justice. Uh, There's some some serious business fantasy language going on here. And Uh, I will say Garth, son of Garth, is a much better name than Kurth Gerson, which <laughs> is uh, the hero of uh, Jack Vance's Demon Prince's and series. clearly referred to here. Yes, uh, Gene Wolf yes. is a massive fan of Jack Vance, as we, will, we yes. will see very clearly. Well, I think we see it clearly here. We'll see even more clearly when we get to the Book of the New Sun uh, eventually. Um, so the Protector wants Garth to become the Watcher of the North Marches. Uh, Garth's duties will be to aid the Protector's tributaries and to show the strength of the Westlands here in the North. Uh, but part of his function also will be to collect back payments from those who are behind and to fight them over it if need be. Uh, and Brandon, before we go on, I think uh, we need now at this point to talk about the narrative structure and narrative devices of Trip Trap. Uh, from this point, the story becomes uh, really completely epistolary. It's told uh, yes. through letters, right? Uh, uh, the same way that Dracula is, uh, for example. And it's it's these letters that Dr. Finch uh, and this war chieftain Garth write back to their superiors after they've received it's, these instructions. It's a kind of uh, Rashomon tale or like a woman in white sort of story. We're given multiple perspectives on the same events. That's right. At the beginning here, uh, we swap between them, between these letters rather frequently. And we get sort of sometimes only a paragraph or two of one letter before switching to the other. And right. um, something that I think is really neat about this story, Brandon, is that uh, Wolf employs a textual device here to signal which of these letters we're reading. Uh, Dr. Finch's letter is in typeface, as if it's being written on a computer, because he's in a science fiction story, uh, while Garth's letter is in italics, as if it's being written by hand, as if it's a manuscript, because he's in a fantasy story. Right. So we start our story proper with Garth's letter. 
taking up his duties as Watcher of the North Marches, Garth brings his army to the city of Janna, where the tributary ruler has asked for help. On a hunting trip together, the ruler begins telling Garth about the many evil things that inhabit the wilderness of his country. But just as he's about to explain what he needs, they come across a strange, uncouthly clad person perched on a stone beside the road. And this section ends with some ellipses so that uh, we can transition to Dr. Finch's letter. This is kind of the, just to help the reader understand what's going on here. Yeah. As Dr. Finch writes, he has set up an archaeological site on Carson 3, and he now begins to give Beatty the full account of his days on the planet. When he arrives, he sets his spaceship down in a remote area and hikes through the woods towards a crude village. Along an unpaved road, he encounters a party of the natives. And these are quite human in appearance, save for their hands, which have only three fingers, and their noses, which are very, very large. And these natives are wearing iron armor and elaborate helmets, and they've got lots and lots of weapons. Yeah, I know I, I, I've been discussing this in terms of uh, Conan, but these are much closer to knights. Uh, they're in, in terms of, I think, the way Wolf wants to envision uh, them. It's less sword and sandals, and it's more medieval knights and small villages. Um, I do want to point out that uh, Janna is a big city, or a pretty good city, according to Garth, son of Garth, and uh, Dr. Finch refers to it as a crude village, as he yeah, said. Yeah, that's right. And this is... And this, this is the is, game he's playing. This it is, is the game Wolf is playing. It is, absolutely. And and we will actually get some, some direct speech uh, to this effect uh, eventually, uh, here towards the end. So um, we get some discourse here uh, within... Uh, within this letter about how repulsive the notion of violence is to Finch and to all humans. Uh, right. and, and this again is, is some of that, that the Star Trek, Star Trek E sort of science fiction that we see here, although I think we've clearly established this really maybe isn't owing anything to Star Trek. Um, but Finch has a weapon of his own called a paralyzer. And he knows that this will make him the master of any situation. Should the need arise? It's not a stun gun. Not no no not a phaser. It's a paralyzer. Um, though I, uh, I I I sense some hubris here, Brandon. I don't know about you. Definitely, uh, he is he is presenting himself in a certain way to his boss. Uh, basically, <laughs> both of these men are uh, writing letters to their prospective authority figures that they are answering to, and they both want to put themselves in the best light. Which leads to some interesting conflicts around the real meat of the story. All right, so now we get back to Garth's letter, where he resumes the tale of the stranger they found on the road. This stranger appears to be a warlock, or a fey man, because he has a flat face and too many fingers. And Brandon, I think it's fair to say at this point that it's more than clear that this is the meeting of Garth and Dr. Finch, and that these letters are, are telling the same story from different perspectives. And I, I think, you know, I've obfuscated that a little bit in the recap here. It, it probably was clearer to a reader before this point. Yeah, I think it's the only way a reader could justify this device actually taking place i think so you'd probably assume it's the case that these guys are telling the same tale before they meet because why else would you intercut the letters like this i do want to point out one line i love in this section that garth son of garth gives us he says one expects the strangeness to grow less when one approaches the land itself this is the the north where there's a lot of mystery and odd tales come from the north uh, he goes on to say for is that is not that the way of all travelers' tales? I ju- I just love this sentence. I love what Wolf is doing here. I love his casual observations about the intelligence of his characters. Uh, I just really love that. That's something that really jumped out to me in this story. 
All right, I'm going to elide a few quick cuts here uh, just to get some plot points out. Um, and really just to say that Dr. Finch knows that guestship, uh, that is a fancy fantasy word for hospitality, yes. uh, is sacred in this culture. And so he asks Garth if he can be his guest. And Garth agrees and Finch joins the party. And uh, they return to Janna, which, uh, as you pointed out, Finch thinks of as a primitive castle uh, akin to a, a Bronze Age fort on Earth. Now, back in Garth's letter, we finally get the obstacle that Garth and Dr. Finch are going to have to overcome. We get some semblance right. of plot coming up here right. now. Um, the ruler of Janna finally finishes explaining to Garth what exactly is plaguing his people. We learn that north of Janna is a fine bridge built in the olden days when the men in cities of the north were famed. On the other side of that bridge are rich fields, which they used to till. But now they only grow weeds and wild herbs because of the person who controls the bridge. Except, it's not a person. No. It's a troll. Trip trap. And he captures anyone who crosses the bridge. And we get an interesting note here um, that this is actually not a new problem. Uh, There's always been a troll at that bridge forever and ever and ever. But in the good old days, when there were more people, the troll would only capture someone every fortnight or so. But now that the traffic is less frequent, he just takes everyone because he doesn't know when his next meal is coming. (laughs) It's just a really interesting plot device here. I mean, this is is just a fantasy story. You're like... it, it might as well be, you know, Beowulf, as I brought up earlier. Of course, have, stranger shows up to yeah, fight your monster. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the the warrior culture and the honorifics. I mean, he's uh, Garth is given the title uh, protector of the North or, you know, something to that effect in the letter, the first letter he receives from his protector, which is an interesting way. He's diverted from coming home after three years of war and it takes and he's proud mm-hmm. to have this title. He's proud to go to. Uh, Janna, and it takes him about eight days to get this information from the protector of Janna. Um, and so it's just really interesting. Again, the, the, the delaying of time is folded into the story. So now that we're in Janna, Dr. Finch tells us that he searches the castle for someone who can tell him about uh, old writings. And he finds a venerable old fellow in the kitchen who tells him about a bridge that is very old with much carving and some writing. And he adds here that not even the priests can read the inscriptions now. And I, I just love the idea of getting this information from uh, an old man sweeping the kitchen floor. Right. Um, <laughs> and Dr. Finch is very excited about this information. And so he bursts into the room where Garth and the ruler are having their conversation about the troll. And, and Dr. Finch demands to be taken to this bridge. So we know at this point that Garth and Dr. Finch will very soon be setting out to fight a troll and solve the mystery of the ancient starfaring civilization. But neither one of them are aware of the other's mission. Uh, so again, they're in the same story, but in different stories. Yes, yes. Their point of view matters quite a lot to each. When they reach the bridge, Dr. Finch is ecstatic. He he describes the bridge as built of monolithic slabs of white stone so skillfully joined that the crevices are difficult to detect, even at close range. Uh, and there's deep bas-relief sculptures that cover every surface except the roadway itself. Uh, In his eagerness to investigate, Finch rushes onto the bridge, and and Garth tries to stop him uh, and even shouts at him about the troll, but but Finch doesn't understand the word for troll, which we learn here is tracky. Tracky. And this is is a really important point to note. Tracky is never translated for Dr. Finch, and, and the effect is that the reader has all the information. We have... Uh, like a reference for what a troll is mm-hmm. in our language. Um, we can think of stories which the title Trip Trap comes from of the three Billy Goats Gruff um, and trolls throughout our entire popular culture. What's interesting in Wolf's 
not translating troll for Dr. Finch is that there is no reference for it. And so it's it's kind of um, what you might call like an empty signifier. It's for his audience, who's Professor Beattie. There's no meaning for this. And so he can't predict what it might be. And he uses that to great effect in the story. And I think it's just a, it's just a great touch of use of language, a true mastery of language when you're given multiple perspectives to obscure meaning in this way for uh, the letter writer's audience or intended recipient. Yeah, and this is going to become a factor, really, even in, in, in sort of how the plot of this story develops. So, Definitely. So at this point on the bridge, Garth looks as if he wants to come onto the bridge and grab Dr. Finch, but Garth also looks very, very afraid. And suddenly, something grabs Dr. Finch from behind. Out of the corner of his eye, he sees a blurred, dark object, but before he knows it, he is hurling through the air and plunging into the dark water of the river. And now we get a very long excerpt from Garth's letter. And, and in fact, the, the, the letter excerpts have been growing longer as we go. And at this point, they become very long. We're going to get several pages of Garth's letter at this point. Uh, and Garth recounts his encounter with the troll. The longer Garth gazes at the troll, the less well he can see the monster. And the bridge itself is shimmering. Uh, nonetheless, we do get a description of the troll here. The troll is tall and fell, armed with a great sword that is cruelly carved at the tip. And in his other hand, the troll holds Dr. Finch. Wolf narrates what happens next with characteristic obfuscation, so I'm, I'm, I'm just going to read it. Uh, he says, I knew then that it was their spirits I saw, and not the flesh. Then it was with me as though a blade had opened the veins of my legs. I weakened, and my eyes were darkened, and I thought never more to see the sun. So Garth loses consciousness, and then he wakes up in the troll's den. It's dark, and it smells like a swamp, and there are pools of water. Garth can't feel his legs or use his hands, and so he begins to pray. And uh, here we get uh, some really rich world building and, and also the introduction, even just in this first story, of an idea that Wolf will return to a lot over the course of his career. Garth prays to all the gods that are, and most especially to the great God who made them all, and the shades of the holy men of the north, who might have the most authority in their own country. And what I really love about this, about this Brandon, is that Garth is something of a pantheist, right? He he believes in all the gods, but he believes that there is still one universal god who even made those gods. And we're right. we're going to see this idea again. This is a huge part of the Book of the Long Sun, and it's you can see this idea that Wolf is playing with now of a pantheon of gods, but there is also one who stands beyond them or or outside of them. I also love the description he gives. Of the treasures trolls are said to hoard. And this is another uh, kind of making strange event that Wolf gives us. He says, Indeed, in the, the old tales tell of things greater yet, of magical windows through which one can spy where he ch- chooses, and rods whose touch blasts like lightning. But I think these must be lies. What's interesting about this is, um, especially as it relates to the Book of the Long Sun, is that these are just computer monitors right yeah and reading this story you really understand where a lot of the development of these ideas began and i I just love this story for that it's so great to see here in 1967 1966 these hallmarks of of wolf's fiction these things that um that we uh, you and i brandon i know for sure and probably most readers of wolf and most listeners to this podcast 
first encountered in, in a read of the Book of the New Sun, right? Uh, you know, written in the in the nineteen in the early nineteen eighties. Uh, so it's great to see this here, you know, sort of fifteen years earlier. Yeah. It's 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 really fantastic to know that this was a program that Wolf kind of had from the outset. All right, so uh, as Garth continues exploring this troll cave, he finds Dr. Finch. Dr. Finch is lying so still that Garth thinks he might be dead. And, but just as Garth is inspecting Finch, he hears the troll's great, roaring voice say, That one cannot aid you. You must face me alone. And the troll appears differently here than he had on the bridge. Now he glows like the flame of a candle, and he looks like a large animal. And now he has no weapons and no armor. But the troll is not interested in fighting. Instead, he wants to know about Dr. Finch. He demands that Garth tell him where he found Finch, for his is a strange thought, he says. And Garth explains that Dr. Finch claims to have fallen from a star. And the troll muses that Dr. Finch has been brought from Outworld to the games in our city. And he also indicates that he won't have the power over Finch that he holds over Garth, but that even still, Finch will only see him as he wishes to be seen. Garth attacks the troll, but he never actually reaches him. Instead, suddenly, mysteriously, somehow, he finds himself outside, running in the night. His armor and weapons are gone, and he knows that this is something that is happening to his spirit, not to his body. All right, now we return to Dr. Finch's letter. Dr. Finch awakes to find the troll in the chamber with him. There is a wonderful detail here, Brandon, when Dr. Finch explains that he'll tell Professor Beatty all about the troll later, but for now he wants his audience to experience the creature just as he did. And and, and this, of course, is essentially the challenge uh, that we face in doing this podcast, which is uh, how to recap the plot of the story uh, in such a way that makes it comprehensible, while also keeping faith with Wolf's narrative technique, in which plots are obscured to readers until the very end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I also like to note here as... uh, Dr. Morton, I'm sorry, Dr. Finch is writing to Professor Beattie. Uh, He says, all of us have encountered a telepathic adept at one time or another, but I certainly did not expect one here, nor had I ever before realized the fully enormous difference between communication with a human talent and contact with one as alien as the tracky is the troll mm-hmm. yeah that's right it's really interesting just just a just a special or not even special just a, just a, a side cursory sort of note here that there are telepaths on earth that this is just a feature of earth society um, this is a real kind of a alfred bester science 1950s science fiction element yeah. here and and it's unclear and i don't think we get clarity on whether or not the telepaths on earth are the result of any kind of alien interference or just the development of humanity. Yeah, nothing nothing is said about that, but I think that we might want to discuss that sort of towards the end. Certainly. So, and I think it's important to note here too, Brandon, although you've, you've brought this up a little bit already, that Finch really is now thinking of, of the troll as a Traki, and this is one of these signifiers here that while Garth is still thinking of, of, of this creature uh, as a monster, as a troll, Finch is now thinking of this creature as a sentient alien. Right. Um, and so we're reminded here again that Finch and Garth are in separate stories even as they are occupying the same room and struggling against the same obstacle. So as you say, the Trekkie communicates with Dr. Finch telepathically, uh, and uh, Wolf has this great description here of of what it sounds like. It sounds like his voice is coming from a public address system of enormous amplification and poor fidelity in the back of his skull. Now the Trekkie asks Finch how he escaped, and then goes on to say that we who brought you here hold all of this world, and you cannot cross the seas of emptiness again without our aid. While the Tracky has been talking, Finch has been trying to get at his paralyzer, and now he has. Finch lights up the cavern and sees the Tracky crouching, looking like a shapeless, swag-bellied body with four gorilla-like limbs. 
The Trekkie's head is more human, has a square face and a slip mouth like a catfish's. And the only thing he's wearing is a metal diadem around his head, which is carved with hieroglyphics. Suddenly, the Trekkie shifts its form and becomes an elderly man in a white robe. The Trekkie says that since Finch has found a light, he may as well see him as he really is. And Finch says that he thought the weird creature was actually his true form. Uh, the Trekkie here gives a, a really great response. It's a response that, that, that might as well be the thesis statement for Gene Wolfe's entire body of literature. <laughs> uh, and it certainly is the thesis statement of this story. He says, You can never see me objectively, your race being without objective perception. The shape you see now is objectively correct, which is the way you define reality. Right, and we should also note that the shape the Trekkie takes is of someone who looks like Professor Beattie, but a trifle stranger and wearing a toga. Right. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great detail. And it's really interesting here, because I think what we're supposed to, to, to assume is that that he has, he's probed Dr. Finch's mind, looking for sort of an image of, of, of someone who has authority over him and has monstrous found... Monstrous authority, pro- Monstrous authority, right, and has found Professor B. I think it's... Yeah, I mean, this is a great description or representation of the Traki, the form it takes, is somebody that, kind of through this context clue is something that Dr. Finch views as an obstacle to his life in some way. Yeah, an obstacle that he has to overcome. Right. I mean, the man did just interrupt his vacation. So. Yeah, well, interrupted him taking the post right away as well. I yes. Mean, <laughs> delaying him from taking his taking up his duties at the university. So the Trekkie goes on to indicate that he believes that Dr. Finch has escaped from the nearby Trekkie city. And he, he also says that he is the guardian of this bridge. But for some reason, uh, he's not been resupplied in a really long time. And he's been living off wild animals that he catches on the bridge. And, of course, by this, by wild animals, he means Garth's species. Right. Uh, and, and what's interesting is that Dr. Finch doesn't see too much of a difference between himself and Garth's species. Mm -hmm. But this trackie sees a huge difference um, between humans and Garth's species. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting note. Yeah, Dr. Finch insists to the Traki that Garth and his people are, are intelligent beings. Uh, they're the same, sim- very similar to him. Uh, but the Traki continues to insist, right, that they're animals. Uh, uh, even, well, he does admit, though, that lately they've become more clever. And I think this is a real interesting hint about exactly how old this creature yes. is. Yes. When Dr. Finch tells the Traki that he is hallucinating and that there is no city and that he's just a native devil on a primitive world, the Traki gets angry and claims that his race is highly technologically sophisticated. And it's, it's at this point that Dr. Finch realizes uh, what the reader, of course, has known for some time. He's dealing with a very old and very demented alien. Finch asks him why the floor is covered in mud if he and his society are so sophisticated. And when the Traki claims that the floor is paved and clean... Finch throws some of this mud and muck at him. Uh, but the mud just kind of disappears when it reaches the Traki. And uh, Dr. Finch, um, as a result, just charges the Traki and f- finds himself actually running through uh, this old man and into the shapeless bulk that he had glimpsed earlier. And it's at this point that the Traki confesses that uh, Dr. Finch's paralyzer had actually worked on him and that he can't move. Um, and so now that Dr. Finch realizes that he has power over the trackie, he demands to know how he and the unconscious Garth can, can escape. How can they escape the troll's den? Uh, but the trackie says that he knows that Dr. Finch is incapable of killing him uh, because he's been taught his entire life, as Dr. Finch has been taught his entire life, that there exists no greater crime than taking the life of an intelligence. 
Nonetheless, Dr. Finch prepares to attack the Traki. Uh, but in the end, he really does hesitate, and then he just loses consciousness again. And the story picks up now with Garth's letter. Garth is still running outside at night. He climbs a hill and sees in the darkness many points of light, as if a mountain stood there, and many men with torches were scaling its sides. And I think this is just a beautiful simile for uh, a really big building with electricity. Yeah, Garth is always at a loss to describe uh, what he experiences in this world, that we're given some clues uh, being outside of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's also here, we should note, some sort of humming noise. Yeah, I think there's, there's a real difference between... So the Traki is this race, perhaps, but it could also be some kind of sentient, technologically advanced alarm system or system of protection that's not really a creature, but that is uh, maybe part robotic. And I think there's maybe some evidence of that as we go on. Well, that's very interesting. I did not pick up on that at all. So I'm going to look forward to you pointing that out yeah. as we go and then uh, trying to convince me of that uh, in our discussion. <laughs> so while he's outside, Garth encounters another of his species and, and they join forces. And Garth explains that uh, although they could understand each other, he knew that he had never heard this man's type of speech before. And he says that even when he himself speaks, it sounds to him like, like all he's doing is is grunting uh you're making these guttural gruntings wolf says and and garth believes that he is in the spirit land but i think brandon that we know that he is either visiting or hallucinating the remote past uh when the tracky were the dominant sentient species on this planet Mm -hmm. i think he's being given a vision by whatever intelligence is in there that he is being removed physically because he's the physical threat so that the Tracky can probe the mind of who he perceives to be an intellectual threat. That's right, and, and we'll, we will return to that eventually uh, when we get back to Finch's letter. Now, when Garth and his new companion encounter the troll bridge, Garth balks. But his companion explains that although the troll is there, he cares nothing for them. And this companion says, he is a sky watcher. See the eye? And here Wolf gives us just this gorgeous description of the bridge in its heyday. There was a great eye of metal lace above the stronghouse. It turned slowly as though it searched for something, but its gaze was always toward the stars. And uh, Brandon, as, as we know well from our army days, he's, he's just described a radar dish. Yeah, and I also think it's got some anti-aircraft uh, <laughs> defense systems here. <laughs> but uh, please continue here. <laughs> All right. Yeah, just then the bridge is filled with light and the humming noise grows to a roar. Garth and his companion run, and Garth knows they are being pursued by trolls. Garth determines to die facing them. And he sees that they are mounted on shining things which roared without pause and whose single eyes glared with yellow light, which is to say, the tracky are riding motorcycles. Right. Uh, I didn't know when we started reading this story that it was going to be about trolls on motorcycles. I'm really glad it was. <laughs> well, there aren't ma- there's, there's only one troll at, at the end of the day here. It's... That's right. We're about to find out. Yeah. One of the trolls dismounts and comes toward Garth. And, and, and Garth suddenly has memories that are not his, uh, which I think is a real interesting uh, uh, effect here. But when he looks around him... All the trolls begin to fade from sight, all but the one who has dismounted. Garth realizes that the other trolls are all magic, and that he is standing alone with the bridge troll. Suddenly, the whole hallucination is broken, and Garth is standing in the troll den, clutching his sword. But the hallucination returns just as Garth strikes, and Garth faces the troll with only a stick. Nonetheless, Garth attacks the troll until at last he blacks out. When Garth awakes again, he is in the troll's cave, and he finds Dr. Finch passed out and gripping Garth's sword, which is drenched in the troll's blood. And the dead troll is nearby, the dead Traki, and Garth believes that while he had been fighting the troll in the spirit world, he had somehow been controlling Dr. Finch's body in the real world. 
All right. Now we get the last segment of Dr. Finch's letter. We're so close to the end here. Here we are. Here we are. (laughs) After he and Garth defeated the Tracky, Dr. Finch examines the diadem that he had been wearing and finds that the inscriptions are, in fact, very similar to those that he had studied on Seta II for his dissertation. Moreover, he now has had the opportunity to inspect the bridge and has found the same thing. Finch reflects on the Tracky's conversation here, and, and, and he says, I thought the poor Tracky's talk of a great city madness, and so it was, no doubt. But there exist shades of derangement. One is to believe in the reality of things wholly fictitious. Another, very characteristic of the old, is to hold in the minds present the shadows of the now gone forever. What might we not have learned from the Tracky had not Garth killed it? This is the speculation scholars can make from a safe place <laughs> that's correct it's absolutely true uh and that line is uh, is the end of dr finch's letter so so now we're going to get the final segment of garth's account and we are we are really getting close to the end here we learned that following the, the encounter with the tracky dr finch is not entirely well although finch doesn't say anything of the sort to professor Beatty because of course he wants to impress his boss garth recounts that finch now speaks a strange language in his sleep and often strikes out violently when he dreams and and no doubt these are the the lingering effects of the psychic connection with uh, the tracky right. here so garth now sends to his superior that diadem that so excited dr finch but garth advises him not to wear it for it has strange properties when garth took it from the troll the the tracky it shrank in size so that it would fit his own head. And, and Garth describes it here as a fell thing that made the world grow strange when he wore it, and that it made all men seem lower to him than beasts. He was ill and dizzy when he snatched it off. And, and all of this is clearly the influence of the Lord of the Rings. It's certainly here. not the one true ring he's speaking <laughs> of. No, it's the one true diadem. It's, that's right. It's, that's right. Uh, before Sauron got into forging rings, he, he, had a, he had a phase where he was making diadems. Right, right. <laughs> they weren't as good. <laughs> the troll's crown. <laughs> I, th- I think you need to go write that novel, Brandon. <laughs> so as a final note, we learned that Dr. Finch has set up several archaeological sites, which, which Garth thinks is strange behavior, almost ghoulish. And that's the end of Garth's letter. Okay, we are now in the last scene here. We return at last to the framing device with an epilogue in the form of a second letter to Dr. Finch from Professor Beatty. And we learn that since Dr. Finch has been sending reports to Professor Beatty, Beatty has published some of the findings. And, and these have made quite a stir, such that he had to even organize an entire academic symposium about just the suggestion that there might have been an earlier interstellar civilization. Uh, but the thrust of this letter is Wolf expressing some disdain for academics, a disdain that we're going to see throughout Wolf's work. Uh, in fact, it's, it's so prevalent that if we point it out every time, uh, we'll get sick of hearing about right. it. Uh, Professor Beatty has very slimily taken all of the credit for the work that Dr. Finch is doing. Uh, he publishes the articles in his own name, and he, and he credits Finch only as an unnamed, anonymous investigator that he's sent into the field. Um, but of course, we the readers, Brandon, we know that Professor Beatty is just a pompous jerk and that Dr. Finch fought a fracking troll. And that's the end of Trip Trap. That's right. That is the end of Trip Trap. But just the beginning of our discussion that's of right. Trip Trap. <laughs> So, Glenn, earlier I hinted at that I did not believe this was an alien. The troll itself was not an alien, but a kind of computer that is breaking down um, and is long since. Part of the reason why it's trapped is that it's unable to abandon its post. I'm not 100% on that, though I am convinced that the diadem has something to do with this, with this breaking down of troll's ability to perform its function. And po- whether or not the Traki is a computer or it's not, it functions like a defense system for the bridge. It's in a room with um, 
crazily patterned tiles. The walls are very thick metal. This sounds like it's living inside of a computer. These guys basically end up inside of some kind of computer tower where the troll lives and has ability to project holograms. It has an ability to uh, probe minds. And all of this leads me to believe that this troll is not only in, from an alien intelligence, but is an artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's that absolutely culture. that's absolutely fascinating, Brandon. That's just not a reading that occurred to me. Well, one of the reasons why I kind of <laughs> kind of came up with this reading, I think there's some textual evidence, but a lot of it's extra textual. And and one of the things that surprised me about this story, or really struck me about this story, is y- you and and me and our our mute companion who make up the Clay Temple trio. Uh, have on and off been running various tabletop RPG game systems. That's correct. <laughs> and one of them that we played early on to test out was yeah. Numenera, which is developed and released by Monty Cook Games. Monty Cook himself credits Gene Wolfe for a lot of the ideas that went into the world building for that game. And also, ultimately, I guess the adventures that he, they wrote for the game. That's right. One of the running motifs of this game is... Almost every problem is solved by fixing a broken technology that is wreaking havoc. Yeah, on that's the malfun- malfunctioning. Right. It's le- leaking isotopes right. or uh, uh, is become murderous somehow or uh, possessing people possessing, even. Possessing people or uh, the satellite that it controls is now malfunctioning. And so instead of controlling the weather to make a nice habitable place for people, it's making a horrible place for people, for example. Right. And then people go crazy as they go near it. You know, which is just kind of this weird fiction element right. that Monty Cook threw in because it's extraordinarily popular and fun, and 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 you and I both love weird fiction as well. And so there's a lot of extra textual things. I and mean, as I was thinking through that, I also realized that this is the biggest element of the Book of the Long Sun, which I never read the Book of the Long Sun as kind of like a book about technology breaking down oh yeah that's that's but really that that's is the what setting it's of that about. It's, yeah that's um, absolutely what it's about and part of what really struck me about this story as i said is how it reframed a lot of gene wolf's stories in, in my mind particularly from some of these extra yeah had, had you read this points. story before i had not okay. this is my first time reading it um and i read it a few times in preparation for this and one thing that falls flat for me in the Numenera games is they don't capture the spirit of Gene Wolfe, which is why what I go yeah, to They Gene don't capture Wolf the prose of Gene Wolfe. But the spirit should be there. And part of what makes this story so rich, and this is kind of what I want to launch the discussion with, is not the people battling the trolls, but how Wolfe claims two old forms of literature. One is the epistolary novel. The other is the warrior Thane story uh-huh. relationship. And claims them for science fiction and revitalizes them in a way that it's very difficult to imagine this happening with any other genre. And it's what I go to Wolf for and maybe why I miss some of the cool stuff that a lot of other people go to Gene Wolf for. Um, So I just wanted to talk about the representation of technology in this story because that's what really struck me most about it. In two cases, we have technology being described as a devil. In the first instance early on, Dr. Finch doesn't want his spaceship being like messed with by the locals as some kind of devil's carriage. Yeah, that's right. They'll think that he's some kind of superstitious creature, a fey man perhaps, as as Garth actually thinks of him, and destroy his spaceship. Right, by throwing it into the lake. <laughs> by throwing it says. into the lake, that's right. In the second instance, Finch also 
calls the troll, as you said, Glenn, a native devil on a primitive world. That's right. Yeah. Um, we get devil in a few other forms in this story. One in particular is with a kind of beast that's like a nude saber tooth. Uh-huh. Right. A saber tooth lemur, I think, actually. Y- yes. I am going to make the claim here, and I'd like, love to hear your thoughts, that whenever Wolf is referencing devil in this story, he's he's referring to some kind of technological mayhem that has negatively impacted this this particular world. Okay, so so I think that's a really that's a very interesting thought, and I want to get to that. I want to go back and start kind of where 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 we began here, and and address maybe what's sort of the foundation of this claim here, which is the question of whether or not it, the tracky is a biological creature or a machine. Yeah, um, and I think that you you make an interesting point or make an interesting argument for seeing the tracky as some kind of robot or as part of a mechanical. Uh, technological defense system, but I want to point out that the for seeing it as for seeing the tracky as a biological organism, we know that it eats. Right. Well, it, it eats supply. It needs supplies. It needs supplies, yes. and it is con- taking them in the form of consuming Garth's species, members of Garth's species. Lately, yeah. Lately, yeah. Um, but what would be the benefit of a the tracky race setting something like this up? Could this just be a malfunction of the system? What was in the tracky city that we right. are given to believe was grand um, and Atlantean? This is where the Hyborian Age really comes into play in this story. For for you, those of you who are unfamiliar with Conan the Barbarian, um, Conan the Barbarian stories take place between the fall of the technologically advanced Atlantis and the restart of the new modern Western civilization. Yeah, that's right. And there actually are very clear Robert E. Howard influences on this story. Um, The name of it is escaping me now, but it has something to do with the uh, Elephant Tower, Uh, one very famous Conan story, actually, which involves breaking into a wizard's tower uh, to discover that the source of the wizard's power is that he has a space alien imprisoned wow. in the dungeon. Um, and and who, the space alien has, like, you know, psychic powers, magic powers that the wizard is able to to sort of harness for his own purpose, purposes. And Conan sets him free after, like, five pages of monologue from the space alien about where he's come from. It's- yeah, and I guess another point that we're given in this story is that humans were somehow trapped in the tracky city to use maybe for something like yeah. games. Okay, like, so uh, yeah. let's 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 focus up here on 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 again still just on this question of whether or not the tracky is a machine and then whether or not devil means uh, something refers to something technological. I'm not sold that that the tracky is a machine, though I think that would explain one of the the mysteries of the text, which is why is it still alive. So I think there is definitely something there uh, to that reading, and I do think that. We will see again when we get to the Book of the Long Sun that although I, I can't say for sure uh, right now that the word devil is necessarily used in this context, but... Um, the term possession is used. Possession in, is in used. In the de- demonic context. That's concept, right. Yeah. And uh, maybe we should say spoiler. There's going to be some possessions in Book of the Long Sun. Right. Uh, which I'm still looking forward to getting to, uh, though I'm, I'm looking forward to all the work we're going to do along the uh, way uh, as yes. well. Gene Wolfe is constantly surprising and enriching. Um, okay. So I do... So yeah, let's maybe... 
You brought up uh, imprisoning people, uh, capturing people, and bringing them into the the, the tracky city that's nearby for games, uh, which really just which really did read in a sort of Roman kind of uh, Roman right. Empire kind of bread and circuses sort of way. And I think that Brandon, then that that really brings up um, what I saw as kind of the the major theme of this story, which is is violence. Yes, uh, violence is definitely a major theme of this story. You have. Th- Dr. Finch, whose culture is violence adverse, and Garth, son of Garth, who was a member of a valor and heroic culture where honorifics that are given as the result of maybe a successful war campaign. That's right. Maybe your protector or lord does not want you returning home to claim his seat. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And it's unclear. One of the mysteries of another mystery of the story, it's actually unclear who killed the troll. That's right, and I think yeah, and I and I I think that's really wrapped up in this theme. So I want to get we'll, we'll we'll get back to that. So there's um, uh, Doctor Finch really kind of uh, has has this great line here or series of lines here that he explains to Doctor Beatty where he says there's always something repellent about the concept of violence done to another intelligent being, and I am not ashamed to say that I was a bit sickened to see these barbarians flaunting their spears and long cross hilted swords, not to mention the bows with which they had been murdering the wildlife of their planet uh yeah i noted that too murdering is a re- he uses murdering in this instance to describe hunting and he calls uh the prey in another instance a victim that's right and so it's real clear that that human beings at this point really absolutely abhor violence to any kind of creature and, and clearly aren't you know they're not right. consuming meat products anymore um they're drinking coffee though plants are still on the <laughs> plants table. are still on the table that's fine or at least at least addictive plants are <laughs> right, still on right. the table uh, we're never going to beat those <laughs> never going to beat those no and uh and and there's some more here dr finch you know says if if, if one could ignore the general bloodthirstiness of their equipage uh it was really a thrilling sight this group of savages and and even then later he says i almost wished uh that i had taken my degree in extraterrestrial sociology instead of archaeology so as to be able to help them their, um, uh, help them direct their energy and courage to more profitable, more humane uh, channels. Right. And so here we have hints in the story of a confederation, which mm-hmm. is yeah. a multiple planets. It must be multiple intelligence lives. That's correct. Yeah. We have... Uh, this clearly is a Star Trek reference. Telepathy. <laughs> Humans have developed telepathy, though it's not clear if that is something that alien intelligence has seeded in the human population. Yeah, I think there's some real hints for that, but we'll, we'll get to I, I that I do as too. well. And, and then we have the kind of human's resistance to violence and the, the fact that alien sociology exists or extraterrestrial sociology is just an incredible note. It, in that one phrase, you could get extraterrestrial archaeology where the universe is full of dead, long-lost intelligent civilizations. But here we have, in one phrase, a picture of a rich life, mm-hmm. of intelligent life outside of Earth. And yeah. it's just a brilliant touch. Yeah, it really is. And and so something, the question I really had here, Brandon, about violence is that we have Dr. Finch saying all of these things. And I, I think that these are sentiments that I agree with. And I think that we are, as readers, are meant to empathize with Dr. Finch's perspective. But the narrative really, in some ways, uh, also asks us to empathize, um, even sympathize with Garth's perspective of seeing Dr. Finch um, as fearful and, and, and timid. 
But I wanted the, the real reason I brought up violence really was to talk about to, to bring up this question of who it is that actually commits the act of violence in this in this story. And this is, uh, you know, I do want to say that, Brandon, that, that right away, even here, just in Wolf's first published story, we get something that is quintessentially wolf like wolf ish, oh, yes. right, which is unreliable narrators with a confused and confusing story to tell. And so um, I, you know, I guess really sort of the questions are, you know, what do you think happened in the fight with the tracky and, and which of our characters killed him and how did he do it and and uh how do you think that that then is sort of is wrapped up with this theme of of violence i'm inclined to believe garth's telling of the story i think you're right that he's more trustworthy there's more openness in his ability to tell the story to his superior and so i'm inclined to believe that he basically had this um vision of him fighting these things in the past his people some kind of ancient vision of his ancestors fighting these trolls um, in the past and that he was doing some kind of battle against the intelligence that was maybe located in this diadem or that whose power was located in the diadem and that uh, Doker Fins or Dr. <laughs> yes, Finch <right. laughs> um, held the sword and actually physically disrupted whatever system was uh, causing these things to happen. So I think Dr. Finch did the violence. And I think as you read Wolf, you realize that intelligence is intelligence. He does not distinguish between robots who are fully autonomous and people. No, he, he, do, he never does. Yeah. He never does. And, and he never comments on it either. And that's why I kind of think this is a, a, a bit of an early take on that idea. Um, and so why I think it's an artificial intelligence and the blood could very well be river mud and oil or whatever is running <laughs> yeah, this sure. machine. So, yeah, I think that in order to save himself professionally. So here's what I think is going on with violence in this story. And I'll, and I'll say why in order to save himself professionally, Dr. Finch has to black out when he's fighting this creature. Is that there's an idea, I think, that when when we get to a perfectly advanced civilization and we are all living in the lap of luxury there will be no reason to commit violence and such a thing would become abhorrent violence is the result of you know in one theory uh, we need resources and we need to protect our resources and um so as we're given to thinking about limited resources and consuming limited resources we have to be violent people and it's still a primitive way to live. But this is a shortcut of a science fiction trope. We're given a shortcut of society so advanced. Once we get space travel, we'll also have solved the resource problem. That's right. <laughs> and I think that's implied here, though it's not directly stated. Um, but if you're drinking coffee on a personal spaceship, the resource problem has been solved. Yeah, right. Or you're just a huge jerk. <laughs> right. I mean, if you're drinking tea, Earl Grey, hot, nightly... <laughs> Um, from your replicator, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, you're not worrying about this sort of thing. No, not at all. And so that's what I think is going on. Is it's too abhorrent for him to admit it would be the destruction. He'd go. He'd have gone native, mm -hmm. which so, is the so, colonial sin. Yeah, the first yeah. sin of colonialism. So is do you, don't do you go think native. that he didn't actually black out? That he's lied to Professor B. Yeah, and that's when why he says he's having he's traumatic out. dreams. Here's one thing I think it's important to point out about Wolf is that some of these mysteries don't matter at all because of the intersubjectivity 
that we're supposed to have of the character's interaction with one Yeah, another. we're incapable of objective and reality. He just told us. He so. just told us that us trying to create an objective reality of what really happened in the cave <laughs> right. is not possible. But what matters the most, and this is why this is why I love Wolf, this is what I go to Gene Wolf for, is what matters most is the retelling of the story. Because that's there's truth in it, even if it's not objective truth. And it's truth that can be processed by the person who's telling it. And that leads the reader to make guesses about what what's important and what's not. And so I I don't I think Dr. Finch killed the troll because Garth would have said clearly if he physically killed it. Right. So I think we do know that Garth did not physic does not think at least that he physically killed it. I guess the question is was Dr. Finch conscious did Dr. Finch kill the troll, or was it really something that happened, as Garth says, that Garth was controlling Dr. Finch's body? Do I don't think, think Garth true? would have ever controlled Dr. Finch's body. Okay. I don't think we have any textual evidence except for Garth saying that he did it. Right. That it happened, and Garth is unreliable in this regard. Let's stay on this notion of, of uh, or this, this, this course that we're on here of, of trying to answer questions that maybe don't actually matter all that much. Um, <laughs> right. That, but they're, they're myster- mysteries, answer mysteries that maybe don't really matter all that much right. um, and maybe have no effect on the reading of the story, but are, are nonetheless really fun to try so to much answer. Fun. I mean, yes, this is part yes. of what people love about Gene Wolfe yes. is trying to figure out these things. And you you have uh, hinted at, alluded to several times, um, this question of um, the relationship between the, the Traki society, this Traki interstellar civilization, and Earth eons ago. Um, perhaps not eons ago, but quite some time ago uh, when this civilization was in its in its own uh, heyday right. at its at its own height. And there are a couple things here uh, that we that we get. I think one thing that we see for sure is that the Traki society is running some kind of they're running sort of violent games in their city uh, in, in arenas similar to, you know, as we see in, in Hollywood epics of the Roman Empire. Right. Um, and there's a clear sense here that they are raiding or conquering other planets and bringing creatures from them to to fight yes, these games. Yes. And so the the Tracky also uh, says something to Finch that I think is really interesting. He says to Finch, "We who brought you here hold all of this world, and you cannot cross the seas of emptiness again without our aid." And the Trekkie really, the Trekkie clearly thinks that Finch is a creature who has been brought to their city to fight in one of these uh, one of these combats uh, from another planet. And the question that I have, Brandon, I think that you also have is: is does the Trekkie make this assumption just because Finch is not a Trekkie, or does has he seen human beings before? I think he's definitely seen human beings before because if Doctor Finch has very limited reason to call into question the difference between himself and Garth's people. I think the Traki who sees Garth's people as animals is definitely familiar with what human beings were or are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that maybe humans stole fire here from the gods <laughs> uh, in that sense. And, yeah, and you Garth's also- people might have also been seeded by humans. Not to tracky, but that in fact humans came mm-hmm. ages ago, yeah. two hundred years ago, right? 
to this planet. And this and is actually why it. they're so physiologically similar. Right. They've uh, perhaps were brought not in, um, perhaps in a, in a, certainly in a pre-homo sapiens uh, phase of our evolution, perhaps even in a pre-homo phase of our, of our development. Yeah. But, but some sort, you know, brought as primates, uh, perhaps a million years ago and simply evolved differently on this planet. And then, and, and we've become humans uh, on this planet. Uh, oh, is something something that I think idea. is suggested alien, here. Yes, yes. No, there's there's story. definitely much to read here, and I think that you're right. Also, although um, it's hard to sort of point out any kind of real direct evidence for it, but there definitely is in this story the suggestion as well that human telepathy is something that we actually owe to interaction with the tracky somehow. Yeah, I think so too. I think this story is trying to show us one path of human evolution, and I think it's showing it that humans evolved through a mixture of both kind of natural selection, but also mm-hmm. interference from um, extraterrestrial life and interstellar travel. And this is a huge part of the new sun that is never explicitly <laughs> discussed in the new sun, unless you're doing, you know, a, a kind of full archeology span of language on every word <laughs> that Gene Wolfe uses. Yeah. Um, so I really do think that there's, strong evidence to believe that if not the tracky then then some other intelligent spacefaring civilization has been to earth visited earth multiple times and perhaps seeded many planets with human DNA. Yeah, so ultimately we see in this story virtually every science fiction trope that exists is in this story somehow in yeah. some way. <laughs> yes, it really is. Well, this story is so large and there's so much to discuss and we hope you'll discuss it with us in, a, in our on our comments board. But I think we've just about wrapped up our discussion for Trip Trap. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other projects at claytemplemedia.com. Drop us a note and let us know what you thought of Trip Trap and, and give us your interpretation of the story. Yeah, uh, on all the issues that we raise, but I think I'm especially interested to hear uh, people weigh in on uh, your suggestion, Brandon, that the trackie is, is a, a robot and not a biological creature. Next time, we'll be covering the story House of Ancestors, which you can find in the collection Endangered Species. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>